when I thought about uh, what I might address tonight in the Dharma talk, there were a lot of possible topics. Um, and the one I chose, some of you may have heard before, um, but it seems really important at this time in the retreat and in the world. I don't know how you are, the two-month practitioners, after talking. How are you? You okay? A couple of nods, yes, over there. A thumbs up here. <laughs> Who's having a hard time? Yeah, some of those too. And those who aren't, you will. <laughs> but then you'll have a good time too. I mean, it's just how it works, both ways. There will be lots of waves. It is a palpable presence to come into this room after the two months or the month we've spent together. Um, Both the quality of stillness and awareness that somehow you sense walking in the door, even just being in the retreat space as people walk around. Um, and even speaking, you can feel it, that we're really open in a, in a rather wonderful way. And that manifests, of course, in insights and understanding and compassion and things like that. But it also manifests in the innocence of mind, where you really look at the turkeys and the moon and the deer who are going to have their babies sometime soon gathering around here. Billy Collins, who was our poet laureate, writes, Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lakeshore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. No lust, no slam of the door, just the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting or huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in his light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the for Cupid's next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. And I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Nameless love, just for everything when the heart's open. So we started this retreat talking about freedom, the sure heart's release, what it means for the heart to be wise and free and open. And what I'm going to say tonight, you already know, and you've been learning it in the cells of your body as you sit and walk. The freedom, not from experience, but how to be free with sorrow and joy and fear and pain and no self and self changing from one moment to another. The first talk of the two weeks, two months retreat, I believe Carol Wilson gave a talk, it doesn't matter what happens, is that right? Something like that? At least that was what was written in the teacher's room. The gist of it meaning that it's not any particular experience, and 
over a long period of time like this, you've had lots of different experiences. But it is the space of awareness, the presence itself, that allows all this play of experience, joy and sorrow and praise and blame, and gain and loss, the eight worldly winds. And you come into interviews and we say, how's it been the last few days? And, you know, we want to be sympathetic about it in some way, if it's been difficult or appreciative if it's not been so difficult. But actually, it doesn't matter very much. It doesn't. <laughs> what really matters is that you're here and present. And sometimes the tears are the deepest experience that you can have. And a retreat that has grief and weeping brings you so close to the awakened heart of the world. And sometimes it's joy that comes. Sometimes they're so close together. There's a word in Japanese, aware, that I think means happy-sad, where the two are almost touching one another. So here you come, and your bodies and spirit get to live more and more in the reality of the present. And with it, the loving-kindness and compassion gets wedded to the mindfulness. They develop and grow together in this beautiful way. And then you start to talk. Here we are, getting ready to leave. Two months today, one month tomorrow. And of course, your personality comes back. And you can say, oh dear, you know, <laughs> I want to be liked. I feel insecure. I'm anxious. I'm judging myself. I'm judging other people. Um, you know, and it's, what do you do? You have a body and you have a personality. And as the Buddhist teachings go, you don't want to examine the body too closely. <laughs> or if you do, actually, it doesn't look quite as glamorous as it does in your imagination. Turns out the personality is kind of the same, right? So it comes back and you're quiet and you go, oh my God, I have a personality again, right? And the point of it isn't to not have it. Everybody has one. You've got, it's like your pet, right? You have it and you have to take care of it. Um, the point isn't to fix it or change it so much um, as to uh, use Ramdas's wonderful phrase where he said, I've become a connoisseur of my neuroses, right? It's like, oh, wow, look at that. That's so interesting. God, that judgment, that kind of fear. I know you. I remember you were there a couple months ago. Now you're back again. And there comes this space of freedom that, here's Mara, you know, or here's the personality, or here's joy, here's sorrow. This too, and the heart is open. There comes a trust the space between thoughts, the space between things, the space between believing or thinking that we know and this great openness of mystery of just being alive and present with one another and a breath and a step in this world. You were like Siddhartha. You remember from high school reading Hermann Hesse, sitting by the edge of the river, and he says, then I finally learned the art of listening. Siddhartha was listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty. He felt he had learned the art before he'd heard all of this, all the numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer separate the different voices, the merry voice from the weak being voice the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belong to each other, the lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of indignation and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways, and all the voices and goals and yearnings, the sorrows and pleasures, together was the stream of events, the music of life, and when Siddhartha listened to the river without binding himself to one particular voice, but heard them all, 
the whole, the unity, then the song of a thousand voices consisted of perfection and harmony. So you start to integrate and you get lost. Planning mind, whoa. Man, it does a good job making plans, right? And then rewriting them. Well, let's try that one again, right? The wanting mind, oh, when I leave, I can, A, B, C, D. The frightened mind, the anxious mind, you see all those minds, okay. But between them, it's very still. And the breath breathes itself. And the space of presence is here, in your body, in your being. And what comes, comes, and then it goes and goes, as it does. So you've learned a kind of freedom of being, day after day here. And as you leave, you want to remember, carry, embody this freedom and the other more complicated circumstances. And to do so, you will need, along with your space of mindfulness, to really mm, treasure your compassion, your mercy, your tenderness. Because when you go back in yourself and outside yourself, you'll see suffering. If you want to see the brave, says the Bhagavad Gita, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can return love for hatred. A lot of the forgiveness will be of yourself as you go and see your personality in your life and things like that. It's just your humanity, like Siddhartha. You say, okay, this is my human incarnation, this one anyway. And it's how it is for everybody. So I got a note on the board. Remember how I talked about visiting the warden at San Quentin last in my last Dharma talk? It said, Dear Warden Cornfield, do we get our records cleared if we make it through Saturday? Thank you, a yogi. You know. A friend of mine, Mirabai Bush, wonderful teacher herself, she was involved in bringing the Gyuto Tibetan Tantric Choir into San Quentin some years ago. You know how the Gyuto monks have come to America. They're the ones that do that very deep multivocal chanting. You know, they've got six notes going at the same time. Quite fantastic. They come here too. Anyway, but she arranged for them to go into San Quentin. And when the day came, they were supposed to go into the prison and to sing together with or opposite the San Quentin Gospel Choir, who have also come. Some of the guys when they've gotten out have come and sung here at Spirit Rock. It's been very moving. But as the time drew to have this event, she got really nervous. Of course, she said, San Quentin Gospel Choir, these are fervent Christians who'd been in horrible situations in the prison and in the hole and horrible things. And then at some point, they they were converted. They were born again into the sacredness of Jesus, into God. And it changed their life, and now they sing about it. And she said, what are these Christians going to think about these Tibetan heathens? How is this going to go? Plus which, it's all these little guys wearing skirts, you know, which doesn't like go in the prison, right? So she was nervous about this encounter. But she's also wise. So when they came together and a huge number of prisoners gathered to hear them, she said, I want to introduce to you the Tibetan Gyuto Tantric Choir. Almost all of these monks have spent long years in prison. And they were in prison because they couldn't, they couldn't live the life 
that they wanted to, that they, were, that, the, that they wanted in their culture, they were thrown into prison. And many of them were tortured in their prison. And after years, they either escaped or released. And then they walked on foot over the highest mountains on earth, sometimes just with rags on their feet, to escape. Very dangerous. And now they live in exile in monasteries in India, and they can't go home. And what has sustained them through all this prison and torture and over the great Himalayas and being so far from home is their prayers and their songs, and they want to sing them to you now. And then the Tibetan monks went, you know, and then the San Quentin Gospel Choir sang their songs, and then they just embraced and loved each other. Because we're actually, in that little note to Warden Cornfield, we're all basically in it together. We are both gifted to be alive on this earth, and we are sentenced to be alive on this earth. And it's this amazing mixture. So here we are, and now our minds are open, our eyes are open, our hearts are open. The question arises, okay, I've found some freedom, some kindness, some compassion, some ease on this retreat, but how about when I go? You know, when you leave, you're not supposed to be doing slow walking in San Francisco or Boston or something, or sitting in a restaurant eating, looking like a zombie. I mean, the, the first, the first three-month retreat that we had in Maine, Bucksport, Maine, in 1975, four, or I guess it was, or five, we didn't have the sense to have an integration period. We just said, okay, retreat's over, see you. <laughs> Next morning, there was one of our yogis found in her pajamas walking through the general store in the middle of town very slowly. And we realized, okay, we actually need a little kind of integration between one world and another. How do we how do we move from this protected place of freedom into the freedom of the world? The deeper that we go in this practice, if we understand, the more fully we're prepared to enter the world. Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, puts it this way, the outer work will never be puny if the inner work is great. And so the work of our practice here is really our gift to take into the world. Now, perhaps this is the first time on earth where most of the pressing and dangerous human problems are created by humans. In the past, it was natural catastrophes, you know, hurricanes and floods and tigers and things like that, but now it's warfare and deforestation and disappearance of the ozone layer and ah, nuclear proliferation and um, hunger in some places and tremendous amounts of food and others and injustice and racism, all that stuff. It's a different time that we go out into. and an important time to be practicing. What is man without the beasts, says Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, men would surely die from great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. It's kind of the old language, but in a way it has more poetry to it. So here, we're going out into a culture of isolation and consumerism and speed and loneliness, really. One person in a car, one person each in their own room, and, and we were lonely. 
what is a Buddha to do? (laughs) The first thing is nothing. Don't go out and do anything at all. From William Butler Yeats. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So there's a kind of gift that you bring to the world of the stillness of this retreat to your community, your friends, your relationship. It used to be that stillness was part of the rhythm of life. There used to be a Sabbath. Buddhist, full moon, new moon, quarter moon, everybody stopped. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sabbath day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I mean, they juggled the days around, but it's the same thing. When I grew up in Massachusetts, we had the blue laws. There was no commerce on Sunday. I mean, now it's insane. It's 24-7 all the time. What do you want? You know? How important it is to have a deep Sabbath like this retreat and to carry the Sabbath with you, to listen to the rhythms of nature, to stop, to see the eyes of the person next to you. So the first thing to do is nothing. And then when you're quiet, if a child falls in the street, you pick her up. It's not very complicated. When I was a young man in the 1950s, I remember the cover, shows how old I'm getting, I remember the cover of a Life magazine. It was like 1954 or something like that. We subscribed. And it was a cover of Vinoba Bhave with a whole lot of people walking with him in India. Vinoba Bhave was the chief disciple of Mahatma Gandhi. And after Gandhi died in 1949, after the partition and all of that dramatic time, the whole Gandhian movement was in disarray. What do we do next? We have our national freedom. And people kind of went their own way, and they were also in shock and grief from Gandhi's death. And after a few years, they said, well, you know, we should get together. There's still work to do for India, for our people. So they decided to have a big gathering of Gandhi's disciples and asked Vinoba if he would leave it, lead it. And he said, no, no, we can't recreate the past. But they begged him, please come, please come. Finally, he said, all right, I will go, but only if you postpone it for half a year so I can walk there and listen. And he started to walk, I don't know where his walk from, maybe it was from Bombay through Warda in the center of India to wherever it was, to South India. Six months of walking, and he'd go village to village, and in each village he'd gather under the big tree in the center of the village that was John talked about, that was the meeting tree, and listen like Gandhiji did to the villagers, their sufferings, their hopes. And in one village, partly along the way, there were a number of untouchables, And they said, you know, our lives are so poor, we can't educate, feed our children, you know. And and Vinoba said, well, why don't you grow food? And they said, we have no land. We're untouchables. And he said, well, how much land would it take? Oh, you know, five acres a person. And Vinoba said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go back to Delhi and talk with Prime Minister Nehru, my friend, and maybe we can get a law passed so that land is granted to the untouchables. They all went to sleep a little more hopeful. Next morning, Vinoba called them all together and he said, I didn't sleep well. I thought about it, and even if we can get the law passed, by the time it goes from the Indian Parliament to the big states, and then to the provinces, and then to the districts, and then to the villages, with each of the leaders of those, and then finally down to you, It'll be 100, and then it'll be 80, and 50, and 60, and 20, and by the time it gets you, if it ever gets you, you get nothing. I know how bureaucracy works. I don't know what to do. And he wept. And as he's sitting there, hearing their sorrows, and thinking, I don't know what to do, and weeping, a man stood up 
and said, I am a follower of Gandhiji and uh, I want to help our new country. How much land do they need? 16 families, five acres apiece, 80 acres. He said, I will give rich man in the village. I will give them in the spirit of Gandhiji. Vinoba said, no, go home and talk to your wife, your family first, your, who will inherit, make sure it's okay. Next day he came back, he said, yes, they agree we can give this land. So that was accepted, and Vinoba walked to the next village, sat under the tree a little while, passed, next day or two, same kind of stories, we're so poor, we're untouchables, we have nothing. And he told the story about the previous village. And it was so inspiring that another man stood up and said, yes, I too, one of the rich men in the village, I have land. In Gandhi's spirit, how many, how many families? 20 families, five acres, one, about 100 acres total. I will give. And he went home and talked to his family and came back. And Vinoba continued to walk. And by the time he got to the conference several months later, he had collected 2,200 acres of land for poor families. And this was the beginning of the Indian Bhutan land reform movement. And after that, from that conference, Vinoba Bhavi and his followers walked through every province and every district in this huge country of India over a course of about five years and collected 14 million acres of land from those who had it to give to the poorest families in India. The Indian Bhutan land reform movement was one of the largest peaceful transfers of land in modern history. And all because, he said, I won't go to the conference unless I can walk and listen. So when you go out, it's not that you have to do something right away. Maybe your first act is simply to go and listen in some deep and beautiful way. And when you leave here, it's not that you take very much. You take the memory, the cellular sense of mindfulness and freedom and kindness. And beside that, you don't have to remember much. I mean, this isn't the place to get stuff. This is the dump. This is actually the place to leave stuff so that you go free to see with fresh eyes. And there you go back, and then what? As it says in one of the Buddhist texts, and now your meditations have deepened so that you realize that every event is spontaneous and free of its own nature. And now, too, there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do, do not realize the essence of their own mind, all those who are confused and suffer. And you will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. So you go back, and what is there to do? Well, in the Buddhist language, it's bodhisattva activity. Here we are, and we thought we were separate, and then we discovered we're nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. A bodhisattva is a, bodhi means awakening, and sattva is being, is a being committed to awakening, whose heart is turned to bringing awakening to themselves and all that they're connected with, which course happens to be everything in the universe. As somebody said, if you want to make apple pie from scratch, you have to start with the Big Bang, right? And then go on from there. So you go back, and there are all these versions of the Bodhisattva vows. I have one page that has like ten different versions. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them all, you know, or innumerable sentient beings, I vow to save all beings, I vow to awaken them, and I vow to release all desires, and, you know, 
develop all the approaches to dharma or the immeasurable dharmas, I vow to master them, all these kind of insane vows that I'm going to go and liberate all beings. And of course, you know, if you think about it in time, that's impossible. Okay, I mean, how many beings, you know, are you going to meet next week? And you start checking it off, but there's a lot of beings that you won't. Because it's not rational. It's completely insane which is why it's so wonderful, because it's not about your thinking mind. It's really about your heart that doesn't think in terms of numbers and categories, but knows that one being and all beings are connected. And then you have the bodhisattva vows like Diane Ackerman writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home, and in the mansions of the stars. So you can make your own bodhisattva vows, she did, and they're beautiful in the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon. And what the vows are is not that you're going to do something, but they set the compass of your heart in the direction that says, even if the sun should arise in the west, as Suzuki Roshi says, the Bodhisattva has only one way to bring the heart of compassion and awakening to this moment, to these beings, to this circumstance, whatever it is. It gives a tremendous patience, which you will need out there, I promise you, because the world is not amenable to your (laughs) plans. (laughs) It just isn't. So, in Sri Lanka, where there has been a terrible civil war for the last 18 or 19 years, four or five years ago, four years ago, the Norwegians brokered a peace treaty that's now falling apart again, I'm sorry to say. And the peace treaty more or less stopped the civil war for a time. And after it was brokered, a man, a wonderful Buddhist teacher, an amazing elder and activist named A.T. Ari Ratana, Ari, who's been Spirit Rock a number of times, who is the Gandhi of Sri Lanka, um, decided to call all the members of his Sarvodhya community together. And the Sarvodhya is the community of bodhisattvas in Sri Lanka who work in all the villages and help people build schools and roads and wells and serve one another, not to build schools and roads and wells, as Ari says, but to build their love for one another as a spiritual practice. And the schools and roads and wells are the vehicle for their awakening. The most successful uh, community development activist in, in all of Asia. So he called his followers together at the temple in Anuradhapura, this huge temple, and 650,000 people came in a tiny country. And Ari stood up and he presented to them Sarvodhya's response to the, to the brokered peace plan, which was the Sarvodhya 500-year peace plan. And he looked out and he said, it has taken us 500 years to get into this predicament. And the teachings of the Buddha are that we should look at the causes and conditions of things and not just the result. So since it took us 500 years to get into it, it's going to take us 500 years to get out of it. 500 years of the causes, 
400 years of colonialism, 500 years of conflict between Tamils, um, between Hindus and Muslims, um, and uh, Buddhists. He said, um, 200 years of economic disparity between the rich and the poor parts of the island. So it's going to take 500 years to undo that conditioning. Five years of ceasefire, 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools, 25 years of learning one another's languages and religions, 50 years to begin to right the economic disparity and change the development patterns of the country, and after 100 years we'll have a council of elders to see how we're doing. And then we'll start again for the next century, and maybe in 500 years we will have changed the causes of suffering to the causes of peace. When I read this, I was very deeply moved because it was the voice of an elder and a bodhisattva who didn't worry about the next election cycle, you know, two years or four years or the politics, but of a a carrier of vision. As Thomas Merton wrote, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no results at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite for a time. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And this is what you carry into the world is the compass of your heart and the truth and the value and the rightness of work that comes from inner stillness, the sacred space of listening, of compassion and connectedness. There are really only two activities for a bodhisattva. They say in Zen, there are just two things. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That's it. So you sat. Good. Now it's time to go out and do a little sweeping out there. And in spiritual life, there's this dance. You're learning to hold paradox, joy and sorrow, self and no self, the universal and the particular or the personal form and emptiness. One side of the paradox is, don't just do something, sit there. That's the basic teaching, you know. Again, from Thomas Merton, who says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself in too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is in itself to succumb to the violence of our time. So it's so important to not do anything. I mean, to have the universal perspective of empires and kalpas and eons. Because you know how it is. One revolution follows another, and the new government gets in, the new guys get in, and I use that word gender-specific, generally. And, you know, they throw the old guys into prison and do the same thing if there isn't consciousness. Ah, we're going to fix everything, you know. Your daily sitting, your connectedness with stillness, your presence of freedom and spaciousness is your gift to this world. The world doesn't need more oil or energy, renewable or not. It doesn't need more food or goods. We could feed all the hungry people in the world with 10% of the arms budget. It's insane. It doesn't need more of anything. What it needs is less greed, less hatred, less prejudice and delusion. Gandhi took one day a week in silence, in the middle of everything he did. And you, too, 
need to sit, you need community, you need a place to return again and again to this deep inner stillness. Because somebody in this world has to find a way to face anger and hatred and fear and paranoia and all the stories and judgment that are out there and in here and not be caught. Or it won't be any better. And you know who that person is? As Miss Piggy says, moi, could that be? Thich Nhat Hanh writes, when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So this isn't an easy task, but it's a beautiful one to carry the sense of sacred, to step out of the body of fear, even when it wants to contract. It will contract, that's okay. But you just know that that's not who you really are. You've learned that. To rest in your Buddha nature. And then the circumstances will show you. I mean, I was sitting with my father in the hospital as he was dying. and You know, I tried to teach him meditation, but it's very hard to learn meditation. You know, 15 minutes of meditation instruction doesn't undo 75 years of practicing paranoia, which was really his temperament and fear. And so he was just frightened and paranoid and so forth. So what I could do is not teach him, but I could hold his hand, which we didn't do in our family, but I did it anyway. And because I had sat with my own pain, he was in pain and he was frightened, kept looking at the monitors to make sure he hadn't died yet. Because he'd invented, he was a biophysicist, he invented a lot of this stuff and he kept looking, how's my heart doing? Have I died yet? And he couldn't sleep because he was so frightened and you know how you are after a couple of days of no sleep. And you know, if you start, my father was already kind of out there. And then a week of not sleeping, man, and, you know, I was ready to go home and rest after a whole day of being with him. And late at night, I said, I'm going to go take a rest. He said, please don't go. Please don't go. So I just stayed with him. You know, and what he wanted, he didn't really want teachings. He wanted somebody who wasn't so afraid. And I'd sat with pain, and I'd sat in the charnel grounds, and I'd faced my own death, as you have in your practice. I also told him what, what would happen when he died. He didn't believe any of that stuff. I said, you know, I said, every, most of the part people in the world don't think that they're just this physical body. He said, I'm a scientist. When you know when this goes, it's the end. I said, maybe. I said, but on the other hand, it's possible that consciousness will leave the body. And I told him about, you know, my out-of-the-body experiences and past life experiences and all these other things. I said, so it's possible, you don't know. No. But I'm just telling you in case, right? <laughs> and I want you to remember one thing. If it happens, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just my father. It's us. It's our family. Everybody who dies is your father or your mother or your sister. You know, and when I was doing this wonderful conference. I was kind of the, the moderator of bringing the Dalai Lama together with people who'd been coming out of prison, doing Dharma prison work around the country. And here was this room of 20 people who'd spent, you know, 25 years in Angola prison in Louisiana or 20 years in prison in Washington State for different things. And they'd done their Dharma practice and they came through their Dharma program to meet with the Dalai Lama. And it was quite moving. Dalai Lama was himself, he said, I learned so much from them. But part of what was most moving is that we brought two young Tibetan nuns who'd escaped over the Himalayas, who'd been arrested and um, imprisoned for chanting and having pictures of the Dalai Lama and tortured, raped, all these things. And when we all sat and talked together, they told their story. And then, you know, they were asked, well, with all that terrible stuff, what did you do? And they said, oh, we prayed. We especially prayed for our guards. 
because they were making such terrible karma, we knew that they, would su- they were suffering already, they would suffer so much. And so our main practice was to pray for the enemy. And all these other ex-prisoners who were wonderful people who'd done this tremendous inner work. I mean, remember this guy, big burly guy with all these tattoos and stuff, you could see him in a prison yard easily. And he said, sister, he said, I've, I've been through some things and I've never heard nothing like that. You know, I mean, it was so beautiful. I mean, here were these little tiny nuns with a really an unshakable spirit with a kind of steel in these little tiny nun bodies and all these guys looking and women like, okay, sister, hats off to you. It was phenomenal. So the first thing is not to do anything. It is to carry the stillness and the heart and the Sabbath to this world. But of course, in this paradox, what's true is that thousands are dying in Darfur, and we have five million people in our prison system locked up, or six million, either in the prisons or on you know, parole. I mean, we have more people in, in this insane racist poverty prison system that we have, you know. And the endangered species are such that children of our grandchildren may ask, what did a rhinoceros look like? What did an elephant look like? You know, and the children in southern Chile can't go out and play, or New Zealand so much because of the thinning of the ozone layer. And people are hungry everywhere in this world. Millions. And in a certain way, we can't wait. What to choose? Look at every path closely and deliberately Try it as many times as you think necessary, and then ask yourself and yourself alone one question. This question is often one that a very old man asks. My benefactor told me about it once when I was young, but my blood was too vigorous to understand it. Now I understand it, and I will tell you what it is. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. Each path has the power to affect the world. And I believe that the yogis in the caves in the Himalayas doing compassion for the world are part of what weaves the thread of our humanity into a sane and, and uh, possible survival. And I'm not just saying this out of a belief. I mean, when my wife and I, Liana, were living on a mountaintop in India studying with Vimla Thakar, she's a really wonderful meditation master and great yogi. At one point, Liana had this vision of her brother dying. She got frightened and she came to me and talked about it. And I said, oh, visions of death, they come in meditation. Don't worry about it. That's just part of archetypal stuff that comes. And sadly, I was wrong. Ten days later, a telegram came that said, your brother Paul has died in this way. And then we looked and noticed that the telegram was dated the day that she had the vision, and he died in the way that she had seen. He came to her after his death, too, and told her that he was fine. It was very, very moving for her. Now, everybody's heard these stories, right, at some point or other. You know why? Because they're true. That's why. It's not a fiction that we're connected. It is the fundamental reality of consciousness. So Gandhi says, I believe in the unity of all things. And I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. 
so we each make our way through this world. And sometimes it's teaching one child, this from Ralph Waldo Emerson, to laugh often and much. Yeah, if you have a spiritual practice that doesn't have humor in it, anyway. (laughs) Be worried, right? To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest criticism and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty and find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. And so you've got to find your way. I mean, a friend who sits as a psychologist, he was the psychologist for Weight Watchers International for a long time. And then she got this idea on a retreat. She said, it's crazy. All these people who have too much food and are worried and are dieting all the time, and all these people who are hungry and don't have enough. So she started an organization called Dieters Feed the Hungry, in which as you diet it and save money on your food, you put it in this fund to feed the people who most needed it. Sometimes it's political, sometimes it's economic, sometimes it's the monks who go out in the forests of Thailand and bring their robes and ordain the great trees in the last remaining forests of Southeast Asia, make them the abbot of the forest so that the loggers won't cut that area down. So sometimes it's ecological. So many ways. We had a men's retreat here once, and there was a man who said, I have a radio show, I do blues music on this little radio station in L.A. and Santa Barbara. I've done it for 20 years. And I do a call-in show, you know, where people do their requests. And I got a letter one day from this guy who was in prison asking for certain early blues, you know, I don't know who it was, Blind Lemon Jefferson and some of the early Mississippi Delta blues players. And so I read his letter and I said, for this, this man who's obviously a connoisseur of the blues and wants to hear these great masters, I will play for Raymond these pieces. And he did. And then he got a letter a couple weeks later with a tremendous gratitude and the man said in it, I was so grateful you played the music and that you dedicated it to me And I think that it's the first time I've heard my name used in public in my life with respect. Imagine that. And how important that was for him to hear that. We each have to discover our gift as an artist or a business person. There are all these wise and enlightened business people around the Buddha, merchants they called them, like Anattapindika, Ubakin, as a journalist or a contemplative or a healer or a builder. It doesn't really matter. A school principal liked to make sandwiches for the homeless. Several days a week after school, she wasn't tired, and she just enjoyed the pleasure of doing it, she'd go down and distribute the sandwiches. She didn't care if she was thanked, sometimes people refused her. She wasn't doing it because it was what she was supposed to, but it just felt right to her. After some time, the media found out about it, and she became a minor celebrity in her area. And inspired by her work, the other teachers, uh, people began to send her money for her ministry. To their surprise, They all received their money back with the short note that read, make your own damn sandwiches. (laughs) It cannot be imitation. 
Nobody has ever looked like you. Nobody has your gifts, your quirks, your personality, your capacities, your particular karma. What matters is that the uniqueness in you blossoms in this world. And meditation is the space that allows this spirit, this capacity of the heart, your true nature, to bring itself to life. Do you know what most amazed me on this earth? Said Napoleon, the inability of the force to, of force to create anything lasting. The fact is that in the long term, the sword is beaten by the spirit. It's always so. This is Napoleon talking. The sword is beaten by the spirit. In our culture, love is seen as a weakness, you know. And there are two really great sources of strength on this earth. Those who aren't afraid to kill, kind of power, and those who aren't afraid to love. And you see somebody like Gandhi, you know, or Ari Ratana, or whoever it happens to be, who give themselves to the world, and in some ways it's unstoppable. As Ramdas says, never underestimate the power of the human heart, of just one person who is awake. When I look through that doorway of the heart, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon seem like children's toys. The sources of power, those not afraid to kill and those not afraid to love. It's the great source. And here we learn this. We face our own death, and impermanence, self and non-self, joy and sorrow, your own tears and grief and longing and love. And there comes a courage, a trust, a forgiveness. Stay with it. Sit at home, walk, connect with your sangha, continue your retreat practice in the ways that nourish you. and allow you to bring the gifts of your heart to the world. From the Tao Te Ching, if you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you remember where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings. And even when death comes, you are ready. Maybe it should say you are easy. It's such an honor to have this time and space to practice as we have together. And it is really an awakening of our own, the best of our own humanity, privilege. And I know that you will carry it out in your ways. And you will suffer. That's the first noble truth. That's okay. doesn't matter. It's just suffering, you know. So we all do that but something that you know is bigger than that. You're not just defined by that. And so you have something beautiful to bring to the world. And you will find your rhythm, stillness and action, like breathing in and breathing out. They're both a part of our life. Let's sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.